Nobody really wants the GDR or the wall back, but they do miss the social aspects. Unemployment was non-existent, everyone was able to pay their rent, which isn't the case anymore today. That's what people miss, the feeling of safety. A man who knows all too well about nostalgia is graphic designer Marcus Heckhausen. He noticed the pleasant motif of East German traffic lights during his first visit to East Berlin in the 1980s. They featured a man in a hat known as Amplemann. In 1995, he had the idea to turn these unused traffic lights into lamps. There are many other once-familiar brands from the East which are still on sale. One place to find them is Berlin's Ostpaket store, which carries 160 different products. Schlager candy bars, Tempo peas and lentils, Brockensplitter hazelnut candy and all kinds of alcoholic beverages. Why should everything disappear? It's local taste that you don't want to lose. No one takes the Weisswurst sausage away from the Bavarians. This is The Secret Life of Language, a podcast from the University of Melbourne's School of Languages and Linguistics. I'm Dr. Leo Kretzenbacher. In this episode, we continue our look back at life as it was for ordinary East Germans living behind the Iron Curtain, as it were, and the now defunct German Democratic Republic, or GDR. We are asking the larger questions. How should we remember the GDR? And was life really so bad there? In the first part of this conversation, and I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't already, we looked at the impact of state repression on daily life, jobs in a country where everyone was expected to work, gender relations, real and professed, and consumer adventures in television and shopping. As the conversation continues in this episode, we tackle East German culture and the arts, movement and travel, uses of language and humor, and notions of identity either side of the Berlin Wall. Plus, we speculate on how the GDR is likely to live on in our collective consciousness. As before, joining me around the table are my fellow German studies researchers, Professor Alison Lewis and Dr. Claudia Sandberg. Claudia, by the way, grew up in East Germany. We talked about a lot of sad and dreary aspects of, of the GDI in a grey cities, no consumer goods queuing. But one thing that impressed me again as someone growing up in the West was the the rich tapestry of culture in such a small country as in the GDR, art, music, literature, and people were really passionate about it. And, you know, people who you wouldn't believe are, you know, aficionados of high culture were passionate about it, something that in a in a consumer society like the West, the West is much more blasé about it, you know. No one gets excited very much about art or theater or so. And that was much more the case in my impression in the GDR. Could you confirm that? Oh, definitely. I mean, the regime really promoted reading, uh, reading the classics, reading Brecht, reading, you know, Goethe, same with music. And often it was because of the censorship of contemporary literature and contemporary art, the restrictions on, let's say, contemporary art. Uh, and it was safer in many ways to say, okay, this is a canon, this is a Marxist canon and a humanist canon, and let's get everyone to read the classics. And But, of course, there were all the banned uh, works of high German culture like Kafka, and you weren't allowed to read Kafka and Freud and, and things like that. So 
it was a very restricted canon and and then you know school children would visit uh, the Berliner Ensemble to see Brecht plays and that was sort of compulsory often and East Germany used to pride itself on being a Lesergesellschaft, a reading society. Given, I suppose, my research that I've done on censorship, I am a little bit cynical about that because, you know, I think in many ways it was it was a way of compensating for the, the lack of freedom of speech in, in contemporary literature and just let people have stuff that, you know, that we know is safe or that's part of our Marxist-Leninist, socialist-realist canon. You know, it was a bit of an easy way out. But it's true, certainly with music. I mean, you know, in East Germany, they had fantastic jazz musicians, blues musicians. You know, they had great recording technologies, fantastic choirs in, in Leipzig and, and good orchestras. And that was always encouraged. I suppose, you know, pop music from the West, it's not as if pop music from America and Britain was not allowed. It was. It was just always released with huge delay. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan was eventually released in you know, 10 years later by Amiga. Did you have any West German or American records, Claudia? Yes, we did. You always needed to know where you had to go in order to get these um, records. Oh. So um, I was still quite young, but my sister, for example, she gave me that list. You know, whenever you go to Torgolo, this is where we kind of was the next town, then just kind of ask for Fleetwood Mac and Ooh. ask for Kate Bush. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sometimes I would get these records and then I only bought two and then someone else would get mad at me because I only bought two and not one for them. And they were fairly cheap. I still remember 1610. That was the price. You know, you had access to culture. You had access to cultural events, to, to concerts, to books. They were cheap. But yes, of course, people were quite passionate about it because it was some sort of outlet, something that was not quite as controlled. Could you get Western films and in East there was, What sort um, of films? They started in the 1970s and much more in the 1980s. Also something that you mentioned kind of to satisfy the need also for popular culture. And that's why there was films... Kramer against Kramer, mm-hmm. for example, oh. was released. And well, a lot of films that were deemed kind of ideologically just The ones that were critical of the West. And or... also kind of critical of mm. the West, you know, where maybe also working class played a, played a role. Working class um, Or completely kind of non-ideological or deemed were released kind of... Um, you also had some von Trotter films. They oh, um, kind of more, more into the 1980s. The Akademie der Künste Ost um, invited von Trotter... Bernhard Vicky, um, Peter Lienthal, um, directors. So we, we, we should tell listeners these are West German West filmmakers. West German filmmakers uh, um, to, to screen their films in the Akademie der Künste and to have a public discussion. And of course, it was always sold out. Mm. It was an opportunity for everyone to go and see something else. Um, but once again, you know, this is Berlin and this was where you had this all this kind of cultural offer and it was not available for everyone. And and I can imagine that these tickets to go to a von Trotter film were not sold publicly. You know, most of them were given under their hand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, under the table. Under the table. Yes. So I don't remember seeing a lot of GDR films in West Germany. You know, but now we know how brilliant a lot of GDR films were. A few years ago, there was a retrospective at the Acme and films such as Steine, Solo Sunny, I mean, those, those were really, really brilliant films and not films 
where you would get the impression this has to follow a certain ideology or so. So uh, very, very good artworks. And also that you said books were cheap and plentiful. That was a typical thing for someone from the West going visiting the East. You had to exchange a certain amount of West currency to be allowed in. And it was very difficult to spend it because there was really nothing you wanted. You didn't really want to eat there, the Solyanka. And uh, (laughs) restaurant Solyanka, not not with with normal people. But, you know, you would load up on books. And and as you said, um, mostly classics and so on. Very bad paper, very badly printed, but cheap and plentiful. Yeah. West German television was on hand to film the first East Germans arriving in disbelief. As time passed, the checkpoint became a big outdoor party as the crowds grew. Are you planning on coming back to the West soon? Yes, I'll come back to visit and see how life is there, but not to stay forever. We live in completely different societies and I don't intend to live in the West, just to visit. Well, one of the things that was a big positive thing of unification or of the fall of the wall, of course, was that all of a sudden East German citizens had freedom of movement. So basically, half of the world was out of bounds. Normal East German citizens couldn't travel. I think you were allowed to travel to the West if you were a pensioner at, at some some stage, at, from some age on. But First of all, would GDR citizens travel abroad? And if so, where would they go? So where would GDR citizens have their holidays? You could theoretically travel the whole Eastern Bloc. You could go to Cuba, you could go to Bulgaria, Hungary, um, Poland. This was all possible. Then you have to think about the income level, which was between 350 to 600 marks. One of those, you know, a travel would probably cost you at least double or more than that. Uh, so so while you had the freedom to go to the Baltic Sea, and there were kind of these travel agencies that, where you could book this, it was almost impossible because, you know, you didn't have the financial means. Then again, um, there were holiday camps for children. That was usually organized via the workplace of your parents. I remember that I was twice in Poland for two weeks each time on a holiday um, with other children. There were youth groups where you could also go, you know, abroad to, again, to to Bulgaria, but it was expensive. And it's one of those things that East Germans, after the fall of the wall, you know, were often moaning about that. Now they have the freedom to travel, but they don't have the money either. You know, now they can't because, you know, they're unemployed. You could go to West Germany if you had a first grade relative, either son, daughter or mother, parents. Never the whole family, Mm -hmm. just one person, Mm -hmm. just kind of to, Mm -hmm. you know, to guarantee that you would come back. And this, of course, was dependent on an invitation from that person. And it was also an application process that took probably half a year. Hmm. So you could apply to attend, let's say, a relative's birthday, a big birthday party in the West. And and it might be approved. It varied a bit, I think. Sometimes I think it could be approved, even if you weren't a pensioner, but very limited opportunities to travel. You know, the people I've come across, it maybe they were writers or intellectuals who perhaps had more privileges. Hmm. 
artists could, I mean, artists, uh, musicians sometimes could go on a concert tour if it brought West currency, for example. Mm-hmm. Academics uh, could apply to go to conferences in the West. But apparently you were very, very much dependent on the goodwill of any official. And I remember, again, what a colleague from Leipzig told me. She was a very, very well-renowned professor at the University of Leipzig, and she applied to go for a conference in 1987 to West Germany. And she was told by some low-grade official, no, we won't let you go because you haven't fulfilled your biologic duty. (laughs) <laughs> because she didn't have any children, you know. So and and something like that. Uh, of course, she was shocked, and I was shocked hearing that. So you were really dependent on the goodwill of mm. some low-grade official because they could just say no. Yeah. But I guess the risk there was also if she didn't have any children, she could have as well. You yeah. know, might have yeah. might have stayed mm. in the West. Mm. So she, because she didn't have any, you know, anchor. And usually, if you traveled, there was always probably someone from the state security mm. traveling with mm. you. Uh, you do find a lot of writers who travelled, often travelled in pairs, or someone else would turn up unexpectedly when they're in a foreign country in Bulgaria, and it would often turn out to be a spy. And so I find that a lot in the Stasi files, that people think, oh, so-and-so just happens to be at this same event, or somebody just happens to be having a holiday here. Turns out they were sent there to to spy on the the writer just to make sure they don't say anything Mm. or, or do anything or to make sure that they don't contemplate staying or leaving. or But, but then again, once again, you know, when I'm looking um, very often for, for research, I look through the archives of a certain kind of production files for films. And they were very often kind of made up either in, in Bulgaria or some other places, or did they have to go to film festival, let's say to the Berlin Film Festival. So this was a very short process. You know, there was just a, a note handed in to the Hauptverwaltung Kultur that so-and-so had to go there. And there was a taxi driver who would take them to West Berlin, for example. And they had to, of course, um, hand in a report about this. But it seemed there were some, Mm -hmm. for some places, there were some privileges, you know, in areas such as film, for example. One effect of going abroad or going to another country is to all of a sudden feel German, you know, the, the, the national identity, you know, something that you don't have to think about when you're at home. At the time of the GDR, was there a, a definite East German identity or a German identity? The GDR national anthem uh, talked about Einig Vaterland, Germany as the fatherland, rather than East Germany as the fatherland. Was that the feeling that there is such a thing as an East German identity during the GDR? But once again, we didn't travel abroad. Mm. So, you know, there was not this question, are you German or are you East Mm. German? Another thing is... That there was always this focus on this this collective identity, mm. on this you know, on the collective, on the group. So you wouldn't really have that idea of you know being you you were a DDR burger, a citizen of the GDR, yeah. but you were not necessarily East German because you were not in touch with West Germans. So that sort of comparison or that was this reflection was mm. just that there yeah. because you didn't have to you didn't have to deal with that. Yeah, and I think they thought of themselves as sort of the better Germans or the better Germany. So it was sort of almost like an either or in many ways. I mean, 
it wasn't like you were East versus West. It was like we are the real Germans or we are the legitimate Germans. And it was an identity that was prescribed to you. It was some sort of collective kind of layer of identity that what you have to be. No one asked you how you felt. What are you? This is what you are. This is, you know, this is this is your history. This is what we are. We are anti-fascist. You know, we, we are, you know, we have other alliances with other brother states and other socialist countries. But there was not never the question for your own private, individual, national identity. In West Germany, a lot of the identity was regionalized. So there was a very strong feeling of, you know, you Bavarians or you Northerners or you from the Ruhr Valley. Was there some sort of regional competition between, you know, Saxons and Mecklenburgers or, or you, you Berliners? Definitely. So shall I give you a quick run through the different areas? The fish copper, the ones in the north, of course, didn't talk very much. The didn't fish say heads. The fish yeah. heads. The fish heads didn't say anything. <laughs> then you had the Berliners who, you know, would always say anything, you know, had this very specific accent that was very careless. And then uh, kind of the big rival, no one liked people from Saxony Saxony. because of the accent. Of course, it's still going on, Mm -hmm. you know, jokes about this. And and everyone talking about where did you go and have your vacation. Many people went to the Baltic Sea. This was the place to be. This this was, you you were given kind of a spot this year, again, by your your workplace to be in a um, kind of some sort of colony, you know, would never go mm. to a hotel or anything. So we'd spend your holiday at the Baltic Sea and right next to you were with this couple with children from Saxony. So you knew right away, of course, where they were coming from. And and this children would say, Fadi, instead mm. of Papa. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of this was this, yeah, you know, regional identities, definitely. You also mentioned that uh, some of the state identity was superimposed from above. And I think that is very typical for authoritarian societies where you have, you know, one official identity and then you have a private identity. And very often that is also reflected in language, you know. So there's a set of vocabulary that you use at official functions and there is a set of vocabulary or a way of speaking that you only do with family or friends that you trust. Whereas, of course, in the GDR, it was very difficult to find out mm. who's, what friends you could actually trust. Is there anything that, that you remember about about that? I mean, one thing I, I read is that Germany has a difference between an intimate address form do and the official address form Z, and that party communication was always with this do address form, party do. But people really, when they went back to private mode, even with people who they were using the intimate address form in official context, they would go back to the the distanced C because that was a civil way of of dealing with one another. But uh, any other examples of the discrepancy between an official way of speaking and uh, of dealing with language and private language? Well, I mean, if you're in the party, then you had to call each other genosse yeah. to comrade. comrade. Mm. So that was sort of an official way of saying, I know you're one of the, the party elite. Mm. Um, Even the word "collega" was actually officially for the for the state uh, trade union. So uh, again, colleagues from East Germany, when they came to West Germany, they were astonished that academics called each other "Herr Kollege, Frau Kollegin" because they thought that was specifically for the for the GDR trade union. You know, there was there was certainly 
um, a specific terminology, even set phrases, set sentences um, that you would use. And you were just trained to do that. Um, there, there was this private place and there was the public place. And this went with a specific language that you always knew what was right, you know, in any kind of situation, which was in certain ways also something that kind of made language absolutely poor. First of all, because we didn't have a discussion culture, you wouldn't discuss anything, of course, you know, you know, you knew what you had to say. And, you know, in some ways, of course, you could give your opinion on small matters. But this was apparent after the wall came down and people could not express themselves. You mm. know, they didn't have any words. Mm. They because they didn't have any voice. You know, you mm. didn't you don't have any voice and you know you no one you know ever ask you about anything. And I remember specifically um this Winter AD, this was a documentary by it, East German documentary filmmaker Helge Miselwitz, um, who was talking to women from all walks of life about their expectations. And something that struck me there was that people wouldn't say mein Sohn when they talk about their family or they, they would say der Sohn. Hmm. Not my son. Not my son. You know, not son. even, okay. not, not even oh. yes, der, der Sohn, die Tochter. Die Tochter ist jetzt auch schon aus dem Haus. The daughter is, you know, has already left home. Just somehow it is kind of putting a distance and you know, not accepting their own identity, not accepting, you know, kind of their own voice. And, and also kind of talking, not in set, in worn out phrases, but definitely in a very kind of basic language. And that was, you know, very, very sad to see. I mean, and of course, it was one of the stereotypes about the Aussie not being able to express themselves. Mm. Well, I mean, it was a very authoritarian society. It really was. I mean, I'm struck by some very odd social habits that, that seem to develop over the, the period. And it's not so much to do with language, but to do with this sort of not having a voice or And how do you compensate for not having a voice? There was this odd thing that, that developed called an Eingar, but if you really mm. were very angry about something and you wanted to protest about something, and it could be something about your family not being able to do something, not getting into university or some other sort of uh, thing that you were not happy about in your neighbourhood, instead of sort of going to the local authorities or trying to address it in a way that we would, They would write a, an Eingabe. It was like a sort of a petition. Submission. Of, yeah, Submission, yeah, petition yeah, yeah, to yeah. the top. And mm, you'd go straight to the top. Yeah. You'd write to Honecker. You'd write to the head of state. Yeah. Um, so instead of writing to your local MP or even just, you know, writing maybe to the university or to your school, you'd go to the top. And then you'd have a long litany of complaints. In fact, there were people who were very articulate who used to write in the village, I think, who used to write Eingaben for people. And, and it's sort of an odd thing really and sometimes it would have the desired effect and sometimes of course it, it would just be tossed in the bin and and it's this sort of arbitrariness of you didn't know there was no fair process no transparency and no transparency of processes and you could never expect there to be transparency so you'd sort of launch these odd complaints and and sort of send them off into the you know into the mail and never really know and sometimes you know this whole arbitrariness mm. really has me quite sort of fascinated that you just never really knew if you would get any sort of justice or fairness and mm. you might but you might not yes again all of these processes were not transparent and uh, people just accepted that they you know did not found ways of working around found it. ways of working around it you know there were these eingaben but who you know made use of that 
And then you also have to find kind of creative ways, of course, of phrasing, you know, mm. your anger. But it, had, it could not be that you kind of too critical. It had to be, you know, in a way that yeah. maybe could be resolved. Mm. And, and use the jargon exactly. and maybe use sort yes. of socialist jargon mm -hmm. and captured in but then, those But then, you know, in, in some sense, you know, it also have to accept your fate. If you had applied for a place at the university and you wanted to study medicine or pharmacy and you were just then accepted into a program to become a history teacher. Or theology. Mm. <laughs> or sociology. Mm. Just, you know, you put up with it. You, you, leave, you take it or you leave it. Mm. Mm. Because it didn't really, whether you got into university, didn't necessarily depend only on your marks. It depended on your attitude and that what that meant was and, your conformism. And on your parents. So if your parents, your parents were middle class or academic, you had had it difficult to actually get a place at uh, at university. That's when yeah. you'd be offered yeah. a place to study yeah. theology. Yeah. Yes, there was there was certainly you know kind of that perfect profile that you that you could have, but you would still not be accepted you know in your university. Let's say I'll take my own case. I was probably you know was working class or my my parents were, were farmers actually, um so you know fairly low social class. And I kind of had good marks in school. I was uh, with the pioneers, the kind of younger pioneers. I was a kind of this top is the level. Youth organization of the the youth organization. Mm -hmm. Exactly, you know, the one with the blue colored blue scarves. And then after that, the tailman pioneer, which were the red scarves. I was again at the top, you know, mm. I was, I had the perfect CV, <laughs> let's say. At the same time, I mean, I wanted to study uh -huh. kind of medicine, but at the same time, I knew I would never get a place because I didn't have the kind of the necessary connections. You weren't family, not in the party. You were family. The family was in the party. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, all of this was kind of in place. Mm -hmm. But still, there was something else that you have to have. You know, in the end, there was still, you know, you had to be closer to the top, closer to the center, and, and I had the perfect score, but still, impossible. Maybe you got bad marks for Marxist-Leninism. Which was, which was a subject. <laughs> Maybe you it just wasn't got Marxist, bad marks at, You know, at school it wasn't Marxist-Leninism yet. It was Staatsbürgerkunde. Staatsbürgerkunde, that's right. Okay. Marxist-Leninism was for at was, university. This was, you know, at university level. Citizen Cid studies, something like that. Citizen studies. Citizenship studies, I would probably translate it. So this sort of frustration that comes out in an authoritarian state of this discrepancy between official world and private world and not never knowing, uh, being dependent on the benevolence of officials and so on. That, of course, had uh, the outlet of private jokes very often, and very often political jokes. That was the case in the Nazi time, uh, and, and I think it was the case in the Eastern Bloc. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of friends from Romania who, who told me their jokes. I know, you know, one or two jokes, one very famous one is a very early one in Stalinist time in the GDR, where uh, one comrade asked the other comrade, how is the official definition? Are the Russians our friends or are they our brothers? And uh, the other one says, of course, they are our brothers. You can pick your friends. Uh, and then there was the other one uh, that said, the rabbit is running uh, like crazy through the woods and the, and the hedgehog says, hang on, wh why are you running so fast? And the, the rabbit says, oh, there's a new directive. They're going to shoot all rabbits with three legs. And the, the hedgehog said, well, you, you've got four legs. What's your problem? He said, well, first they shoot and then they count. There's stuff like stuff like that. <laughs> Do you remember any any GDR joke? I'm very bad at, at at telling jokes, but but jokes like that, they were you know kind of 
placed even in, I remember, um, kind of uh, family shows like Der Kesselbundes mm. um, that were running on a Saturday and, you know, everyone would be sitting there and, and, and watching it uh, because at the end of it, they would probably, have, you know, have invited an international star like Tina Turner. So, you know, mm. we kind of endured all that Schlager and all that stuff in order to get maybe, you know, a bit of Tina Turner. <laughs> But it was moderated by one or two persons and, and sometimes they would have kind of jokes like that oh, you know you know you have this kind mm. of political criticism placed at this level you know and in a very kind of entertaining way there were a lot of jokes in terms of kind of political terms but also about the scarcity of resources mm. so looking back to the gdr we might want to conclude our little discussion with the with the question what what will remain. So there was, you know, 40 years of GDR, almost 30 years that the wall was standing, 30 years since the wall has fallen. Next year we will celebrate 30 years of, of German unification. What will remain? What is the heritage of the GDR? I don't know what will remain, but I think, of course, you know, someone from, from East Germany would always tell you, you know, kind of this, this solidarity, kind of the, the values of being, you know, much a much closer society where people would be watching out for each other, being maybe more resourceful, more creative with resources because there were not enough. But I think... What is missing with with everything that kind of came after is a little bit this idea of there is some sort of hope, there is some sort of utopia for a kind of for a better future. Because this was something that some um, alternative, some mm. alternative. Um, of course, that's completely lost. You know, a different way of living together, kind of all as, as as a society, and kind of beyond and below. You know, all the jokes and all the criticism. Many people kind of, I think, kind of bought into this. Not not everyone, of course. And then again, you know, we need a more differentiated view of the GDR and uh, kind of the many people and the many walks of life and it, the many ways in which people kind of put hope into this and kind of many mm. projects they have. And I think this is still a very uniform way of, of remembering. Um, but I think there was always this sense of kind of... Um, Socialist uh, socialism or a way to reform this, um, you know, at, at least at the in the end of uh, the 1980s, mm-hmm. there were a, a, a lot of potential, a lot of ideas, a lot of manifestos coming out because this was the time where kind of everything crumbled and mm-hmm. it was it was maybe a kind of a short moment of. I think we can change this. It, it doesn't have to be necessarily kind of a market society. We do, don't have to latch on to the FRG as it is West kind Germany. of West mm. Germany as it is portrayed now that is this was kind of an automatic step. It wasn't like this. And so that got completely lost and also in the in the memory culture that we have now and um, it maybe needs to be restored and revitalized. I am a little bit worried at the moment that we, we will remember it only for the sort of the harmless things, the everyday things, you know, remember it too nostalgically. I think we're seeing a bit of a shift in memory from, you know, the first 10 years I think were dominated by memory of a dictatorship mm. and how, you know, when we discovered the the extent of the repression, the surveillance, the extent of the victimization um, of people and there was a very quick process really in which people's victim stories were heard. And that was very, very quick, the first 10 years. And I think about 10 years after then this nostalgia, nostalgia kicked in. And I can understand that, that, you know, people were starting to remember fondly the gherkins, the the nice things, and just remember that things that they had lost. And, you know, it's very rare that sort of the whole country disappears for a country. And 
So I can understand the ostargi, and I don't mind it when it comes to everyday life and to consumer goods, but where I do worry is where it's extended to the political system. And I do actually worry, and we probably don't agree on this, about nostalgia for the economics. And, I mean, I know it, it is nice to, you know, to have cheap, free everything, but there is always an economic price. So I, I sort of think it is fine to have nostalgia for certain things. I do worry about trivialisation uh, for harm laws and, as they say, trivialising the politics and some of the bad economics that happened. And perhaps we need a, a very sort of differentiated memory of the past where we recognise the suffering of those who had the courage. Let's face it, all those people who were forced to go into exile who ended up in Hornshirnhausen in the prison suffered for their courage and for standing up for things they believed in. And, and I, I worry that we might forget those people's voices. I always tell my students it, this, this nostalgia, nostalgia was necessarily also because it was a mourning process. Mm -hmm. All these things and events happened so fast. It disappeared so quickly. It, it disappeared so quickly. It's and inevitable. everyone was so, yeah. not everyone, but many people were so euphoric about the changes. And then, of course, this disappointment set in. And it was some sort of necessary phase. It was not only about the products. Of course, there was a manifestation in the, in the everyday life and the kind of remember. It was a mourning process. And after a while, of course, this was also kind of done. But it was in a way it was necessary to kind of come back to this and and maybe to to bury the GDR in a way. What I don't find productive about this being a dictatorship because you know it makes everything just victim or perpetrator. And there was a lot of things and a lot of experiences, you know, a lot that was happened in between. And while we do need to remember, you know, the, the suffering and there is, you know, it kind of, it freezes a little bit kind of the view and the access into many, many dimensions that were the GDR. Mm. And maybe as a last sentence, I think no one wants the GDR back. Mm. Can we Honestly, agree on that? I think that's <laughs> I think, true. I think, I think I everyone think agrees on that. No back. one really wants it back. So that concludes our little discussion about uh, everyday life in the GDR and what remains of the GDR. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you for having me. And Claudia. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Secret Life of Language. My thanks to our guests, Professor Alison Lewis and Dr. Claudia Sandberg. Be sure to keep up with every episode of The Secret Life of Language by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Producers for this episode were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param of Profactual and Gavin Neighbour. The Secret Life of Language is recorded and mixed at Horwood Studio by Gavin Neighbour and is a podcast from the University of Melbourne's School of Languages and Linguistics. It's licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Leo Kretzenbacher. Thanks for listening and auf Wiederhören. Musik